Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. We're in Colossians today, continuing our series through the book of Colossians. Um, This is going to sound weird, but I see a few people uh, that are similar vintage uh, to me in here. So let me me ask you a question. Do you remember a song, uh, maybe like I do from a thousand years ago, by Mickey Gilley called Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places? Jay said, mm, I see, I get amen on that from the Fairview boy, right? Like, I can, I can do that. And, of course, there have been many songs throughout history um, with that similar theme. And still today, you have songs like The Wrong Side of a Love Song by Melanie Fiona, where she's talking about a relationship that's toxic and it's not healthy, but she wants to go back to it anyway. Right? There's a, a song, Back to Black, by the late Amy Winehouse, where she's talking about several relationships where she's seeking love in a toxic relationship, and it leads to self-destructive behaviors. And then, of course, there's a song by T. Swifty, Taylor Swift, uh, Cruel Summer, that talks about a relationship that tempted her flesh, but ended up destroying her soul. And I know uh, these songs, if you've experienced the heartbreak of, you know, looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for love in too many faces, right, Jane? If you've experienced that sort of thing, when you hear songs like this and you hear the lyrics, you feel the heartache over again. We can feel those things. Well, these songs are about looking for what is true in areas and ways that end up being false, and they end up leading to disappointment and emptiness. And today in chapter 2 of Colossians, where we're going to find ourselves, you can go ahead and flip to Colossians chapter 2, The Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Colossae along similar lines, not about finding true love, but where to find the true God and be loved by Him. And he reminds Jesus' disciples there of who Jesus really is, that Jesus is who He says He is, and that they, as followers of Jesus, therefore, are who Jesus says they are. And because those things are true, that they shouldn't listen to kind of false voices that would lead them away from Jesus, but that they should cling to the one who has saved them, the lover of their souls. And so um, the, in Colossae, there had been false teachers kind of creep in. We've talked about this as the series has gone. And they begin to, uh, have begun to influence the followers of Jesus with things that sounded good, things that sounded plausible to them. They, made, they seemed to make sense to those who were not discerning. And so if they forget who they, what they know about Jesus, they will be seduced by false teachings and fall away from Jesus. And Paul's remedy is to remind them of the truth about Jesus. And he walks them through several truths showing that Jesus is greater than that which might tempt them, them away from Jesus. Um, because we know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, we will know that Jesus is enough for us. And that's what I want to talk about today, that the reality that Jesus is enough, not just for us, but for you. Individually, Jesus is enough for you. In every area of life, Jesus is enough. He's, Jesus is the true, the good, and the beautiful in every area because He is who He says He is. He's greater than anything. So let's read Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 15 together. 
Would it, if it, would it be possible, we don't do this all the time, would it be possible if we could stand to, to read the Word of God? Uh, I want us to hear it for what it is. It's the Word of God. Let's, uh, let's read together. Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving." See to it, verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. This is the word of God. Thank you. You can, you can be seated. You know, Paul opens by saying, hey, guys, I'm sorry that I haven't been able to visit you in person and meet with you face to face. But I'm really encouraged to know that you're standing firm and that you're doing so well. And, but then, as we just read, he gives them certain things to heed, certain warnings. And he says in verse 4 that he's doing this for a specific reason. He says that, I say these things in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Now, I want to dig into this concept of plausible arguments for a minute because I think it's really relevant for us today. I don't want us to miss this. It's really important. So lean, lean in here with me. Um, let me ask you a question. What makes an argument plausible to you? That would be one. Let's hope. Right? What makes an argument plausible to you? Well, you might say, well, it's something that could be true. Right? It, it could be. Yes, but do you, do you realize that re very often what we see as plausible or possibly true is less about the facts presented and more about the emotions and motives within us. So here, let's hear it again. Something can seem plausible to us or not plausible to us, often not based on the merit of that thing, but based on what we feel and think internally already going into it. Do you follow me? And uh, former 
homicide detective Jay Warder Wallace says that there are several reasons people shun, this is playing a, there's a pun, play on words here, people shun the truth of the gospel, specifically the truth about Jesus. He says, some people reject Jesus for rational reasons, right? Rational reasons. That is that some people have very truly have legitimate questions. Maybe they have doubts. Maybe they've come up with something they haven't been exposed to before. They're like, oh, I, hmm. <laughs> I'm having trouble reconciling that with what I think to be true about Jesus. Um, maybe they have open, very serious questions about God, Jesus, the gospel, those sorts of things. But let me be truthful with you. For over 20 years, I have had as a personal habit, practice, intention to meet with and discuss with over coffee individuals and groups of skeptics who don't believe Jesus and the Bible. And in those decades of doing that, I can only count on probably, let me think it through, probably one hand the number of people that reject Jesus only for rational reasons. They almost always have also, they may have indeed rational reasons for rejecting Jesus, but they almost always have one of these two others that I'm going to show you. Um, Some also reject Jesus for emotional reasons. They shun the truth for emotional reasons. Now, again, from my experience, this has... um, is usually the case that they've convinced themselves that it's for rational reasons. But underneath that, these, we realize that these rational reasons have been erected to protect the emotional reasons that are at the core of why they shun the truth about Jesus. You know, and it, it may be real things. Maybe something's happened in their lives. Maybe they think God has let them down in some instance where they feel like they needed God and He wasn't there in the way that they thought he should be. Maybe they have an emotional attachment to a friend group or relationships that they know God disapproves of, and they feel this tension in their heart. I can't hold on to these people and God, therefore the Bible must not be true, or something like that. Uh, Maybe they are self-loathing for some reason. They, They can't imagine that, how could it be that I don't even like myself? How could God love me? Right? And thus, they have emotional reasons for not um, seeing things as plausible. What we believe to be true at times can really be overly and unduly affected by how we feel. And lastly, uh, J. Warner Wallace points out that some people reject God for emotional reasons. V- I'm sorry, volitional reasons. They simply don't want God to be real, especially if the real God is Jesus in the flesh, right? This is an issue of the will. People um, usually aren't even aware that they they have this position. A case in point would be uh, podcaster Joe Rogan. You guys know who Joe Rogan is. This is a guy who has the largest listening audience in the world. And he seems to have volitional reasons for rejecting the truth about Jesus. They're willful reasons. And the reason I say this is because they seem to be so strong that despite any evidence 
that he's given for the existence of God and the reliability of the Bible, Joe Rogan seems to find it more plausible to believe that Jesus was actually an alien and that his disciples connected with him through mushrooms. That's more plausible to, to Joe Rogan for some reason. Um, you know, I mean, it could be true, right? I mean, we really could all be in the matrix, couldn't we? And he sees that as more plausible. Well, of course it's not. It's goofy. That's a goofy thing to think. But it's more plausible to Joe Rogan because it's his, um, his beliefs are shaped by what he wants to believe. So Paul is warning the Colossians here to be aware of seemingly plausible arguments of their day that may, may have led them away from Jesus. And he, talks, he goes on to talk in verses 6 through 8 um, to tell them to walk out your faith, live it, so that your faith can be more firmly established. You know, as we walk with Jesus, as we um, demonstrate our faith, trust in Him, Jesus becomes more established in our hearts. We see this in other relationships as well, right? If you're, if you're a newlywed, like we, we, kinda, we know we love each other, we've, we've pledged to one another, but it's as we walk with one another that that trust becomes more rooted and grounded in our hearts. And the same is true in our relationship with Jesus. And this, is, this results in abounding joy when we're able to do that in our relationships with one another and particularly in our relationships with God. And Paul says it results in abounding in thanksgiving. This is what Paul desires for the church in Colossae. So he begins to tell them why. Listen, Jesus is enough for you. You don't have to go chasing these other things. You don't have to be led astray. You don't have to feel like there's no hope. You don't have to feel self-loathing. And here's why Jesus is enough for them and why he's enough for you today. If you're a note taker, Jesus is enough because Jesus is greater than human or spiritual ideas. We see that in verse 8. Paul kind of returns to a previous theme. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, human ideas, and empty deceit according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And Paul's saying, listen, be careful. Don't, don't be led away from Jesus by deceitful teachings from other people or spiritual beings, whether those be uh, angels or proposed higher aliens or yet, I mean, the idea that aliens are our, our creators and saviors is, is actually gaining popular ground all the time in the culture. Paul's saying any false ideas, I'm talking about our culture, not their culture, any false ideas that are counter to the truth about Jesus are empty and deceitful. And so Paul says, see to it, be careful, make, make sure of this. Don't be led astray. Don't be taken captive by these things. You know, in our day and time, it seems to me that people really, if, if they could have their way, they would believe anything except Jesus. Other, other ideas um, are more plausible to them. They find Jesus maybe boring, flat, maybe outdated. You know, they were taught about Jesus by their grandmothers. Um, Maybe in their Christian lives, they've seen Christians be hypocrites. Um, maybe they don't like God's morality and they prefer their own morality. Um, sometimes we get the, the feeling that we want more than Jesus. 
And so we, even, even as Christians, and so we need to go find new spirituality, right? And then get put Christian labels on it. We need some new revelation that someone had in a dream or is from some, quote, banned book from the Bible or something that runs counter to Jesus because we think we need more than Jesus. And so when that's the case, when you find yourself doing that, I want to encourage you to check in your own heart what might be the reasons that you are shunning Jesus. Almost universally, they will uh, at bottom be emotional or willful reasons that we go after false teachings. And I, I won't expound more on that because I did a whole message on this section of Scripture uh, just about six months ago. Uh, but in that, that little section, just there in verse 8, it's really strong, really full of great applications for us. So I would encourage you to go to our YouTube uh, channel and listen and watch that. You can type in on YouTube, Reach Life Church, The Battle for Your Mind. And you'll find that message to dig in more to verse 8. Reach Life Church, The Battle for Your Mind on YouTube. But that takes us directly to what Paul says next. He says that Jesus is greater than other ideas about God. He's not only greater than human or spiritual ideas, he's specifically greater than other ideas about God. Look at verse 9. For in him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells body, bodily. Now listen, this is really important to get what Paul is saying here. Jesus, Paul is saying that Jesus is not part God. Jesus is not part God. Jesus didn't become God. Jesus is not an emanation of God. Jesus did not attain so-called Christ consciousness. No. Jesus is Yahweh God. Jesus is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right, The same God who led the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt is the same person who offers to be your Savior from the slavery of sin in the New Testament. Paul is saying that there is nothing more than Jesus because Jesus is God in the flesh, is what Paul is saying here. So, so hear me, because Jesus is who he says he is, there is nothing more than Jesus. He is Yahweh God. He's the greatest being that's even possible. He is maximally great. And he added humanity to his divinity and became one of us in the flesh. What more do you want? Where would you, where would you go to find more than Jesus? Well, Jesus is greater than other ideas about God because Jesus is God. Therefore, Jesus is enough for you. Look at verse 10 with me. Paul says, and you have been filled in him. Now, let's pause. Who's him? He is him. Jesus is him. You have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. And I believe that if you're following along in your notes, that this verse is teaching us that Jesus is greater than anything you face. He's greater than anything you face. When it says that you've been filled in him, that word filled that Paul uses is the same word that he uses when he says that Jesus is the fullness of God in bodily form. He's the fullness of God 
and we find our fullness and fulfillment in him. Do you see how that works? This reminds me of what the apostle John said. James referred, Pastor James referred to it last week. John says in John chapter 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Then down in verse 14, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And verse 16 says this, For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Jesus has given us grace upon grace. We don't have to go anywhere else for illumination, as we talked about in the first point. Further, we don't have to go anywhere else for spiritual sustenance as we walk this earth. The word, this, again, this word fullness here in this context is often used as a, it's a nautical term. It's about going on a voyage, and Dr. J. Vernon McGee says that you are ready as a follower of Jesus for the voyage of life, right? You're fully stocked, fully equipped. You have everything you need because you have Jesus. And notice that like in John's message, Paul here in in Colossians 2.10 is speaking in the past tense. Look, Look at your scripture. He's speaking in the past tense, isn't he? You have been filled in him. So God has supplied all that you need in Christ Jesus. I, want, I read one commentary that pointed out the implications of that this way. He says, um, when a person is born into the family of God by saving faith in Jesus, they are born complete in Christ. Their spiritual growth then is not by addition, but by nutrition. I mean, do you hear that? Your spiritual growth then is not by addition. You don't gain anything else. It's by nutrition. It's by feeding. Um, God doesn't give you more of himself. You give more and more of yourself to God, right? And as you yield to him and feed your soul with the things of God, right? that's, That's his spirit, his word, his people, then your provisions for daily life are already met. You have everything that you need in Jesus. There's no need to go anywhere else, not because you've got this, but because Jesus has got this, and Jesus is enough for you. You know, as the old hymn says, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. We have everything that we need in Jesus. Um, Paul goes on to mention in this verse that Jesus is the head of all rule and authority. We'll come back to that in a minute because he actually hits it at the end. So Jesus is greater than anything that you'll face. Next, look at verses 11 through 14. And I want you to listen closely here because Paul essentially preaches the good news about Jesus, the gospel, here in these verses. Beginning in verse 11. In him, Jesus, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, 
in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I believe that this section is teaching that Jesus is greater than what you've done. Jesus is greater than what you've done. Wasn't Paul preaching the gospel in a nutshell here to them? Um, in doing so, he's reminding them of their true identity and the true source of their righteousness. One of the false gospels that was trying to make its way into the Colossian church was um, like Jewish moralism or legalism. There's that people had to follow the Jewish ceremonial and customs ceremonial law and civil customs in order to be followers of Jesus. By the way, this, is, this also is creeping into the church of our, of our day. But Jesus had made it clear and Paul has made it clear that God's work in you is not a ritual performed on your body. It's a regeneration performed on your soul. That's the work of God. He works from the inside out, doesn't he? He works from the inside out. And Paul points them back then to the outward sign of that inward change in water baptism. As a side note, this is one of the major reasons we believe as a church that baptism takes place once someone has placed their faith in Jesus. We call that believer's baptism. Um, and just consider one uh, practical application of that, of believer's baptism, of knowing full well that you've given your life to Christ and been baptized. If you come to a time in your life of spiritual, like existential crisis, you have a crisis of faith, am I really in the family of God? One thing that believer's baptism can help with is that you can look back and say, you know what? I was of sound mind. <laughs> I knew what I was doing. I know that I've accepted Jesus' payment of my sin. I know that He has made me new because He promises to make me new. I've placed my trust in Him. And something that helps me remember that is because I was buried in the likeness of His death, raised to walk in newness of life in front of God and everybody as a testament to my faith in Jesus. And so believer's baptism, you can look back on that and say, you know what, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm up in my feelings right now, but I want to base what I feel on what I know to be true. I know Jesus has set me free. And that, that's, a, that's an outward sign of that inward change. And um, may, maybe that's your next step in obedience to Christ. We would love to talk with you more about believer's baptism. Um, here, though, uh, Paul is pointing out, like I said, the genuine work of God memorialized by an outward sign of faith. So Paul says, look to them. Listen, listen, he says, pay attention. And, we're, and he would say to us today, and I don't want us to miss this, so I'm going to read it again. I'm going to read verses 13 through 14 again, and I want you to apply this fresh to your heart. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you've accepted his payment for your sin, listen, please hear this. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Let's pause. There was a time when you were separated from the giver of life, God himself. That's being spiritually dead. Paul speaks in past tense. You were dead. You were. God 
made, again, past tense, alive with him. Let's pause again. When Jesus came out of the grave, it was a sign that God's payment for your sin was accepted. You who were dead are alive. Because Jesus is alive. Keep reading. Having forgiven us all our trespasses, what tense is that in? Past tense. You weren't even conceived of yet. You had no opportunity to perform for God and make yourself good for Him. He's forgiven all your trespasses because of Jesus. And and what does that result in? Verse 14, He cancels the record of your debt that stood against you with its legal, legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. Listen, if if Jesus has washed your sins away by the blood that he spilt on the cross, if we walk around feeling guilt because of something that uh, we've done that we know Jesus has paid for, it's not because Jesus is holding us guilty. It's because we're holding ourselves guilty. Listen, your past may be truly awful. In fact, it it was. And Paul says you were dead, right? He, He says you were dead in sin. This is because you had not been yet given a new spiritual heart by God. But now, past tense, you have been made alive in Jesus because he lives. You will live also. Listen, I know how it feels, man, to look back on my past and think, how in the world could God forgive me? I can't even forgive myself. Me, I want to ask a serious question. Do you honestly believe that Jesus' perfect life, which he willingly gave up on the cross, was enough to pay for your sin? Do you believe that? Was Jesus sufficient? Let me put it another way. Are you more sinful than Jesus is perfect? No. No, you are not. He's greater than your evil works. He's greater than my evil works. His death was sufficient to pay for that. Here's an equally awesome thing. Jesus is even greater than my good works and your good works. That's great news because even our good works aren't enough to save us. He's greater than them too. He's perfectly good and he put himself in our place. Man, hallelujah. I'm so grateful. The only proper response to that is to believe what he says about you. If you're in him, you're forgiven. Are we clear? If we're in him, you're forgiven. I read an illustration that took place during the days of slavery in America. It says a poor slave was found, had found his way to Canada, and as the train moved into Toronto, Harriet Tubman, herself an emancipated slave, found the man crouching in a corner and mortally afraid that some slave catcher might be after him. Joe, you fool, said Harriet Tubman. What are you doing cowering here for? You have shaken off the lion's paw. You are a free man on free soil. Praise the Lord, Joe, said Harriet Tubman, (laughs) right? Man, we're no longer slaves to sin, are we? Uh, As the song, It Is Well With My Soul says, my sin, we we may sing this, but think about the lyrics. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. 
Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul, it is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. Listen, Jesus is greater than what you've done. Um, and let me also say that we all, each of us, have the problem of what to do with our sin because we have all sin. And let me be uh, frank with you, because only Jesus is who Jesus is, only Jesus is sufficient for payment of your sin. If you have not accepted his payment by placing your trust in him, right, as Lord and Savior, then there is no payment for your sin. And you'll have to bear it and its consequences. Good news is you don't have to. <laughs> you never have to. Jesus offers to bear it for you. Jesus offers to make you free. So finally, this last section tells us that not only is Jesus enough for you because he's greater than human or spiritual ideas, he's greater than other ideas about God, he's greater than anything you'll face, he's greater than what you've done, but Jesus is also greater than spirits. Lastly, verse 15. It sounds like a weird thing to say, but Jesus is greater than spirits. Look at verse 15. He, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This phrase, rulers and authorities, is a common phrase used by Paul and by Jesus himself to refer to spiritual beings that have power in the spiritual realm. And I just want to make sure that there's no confusion uh, so I want to let you know that any spirit that is counter to the person, word, or work of Jesus is an evil spirit. It is either one of these principalities that Paul is talking about or is aligned with those principalities. Remember Paul's words to the Galatian church where he said, but even if we, the apostles, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him, the person or the angel, be accursed. Listen, let me be very clear. If you go knocking on the, do the door to the spiritual realm, any other way than by God himself through Jesus alone, including if you're seeking it through angels or spirit guides, it will not be a being that's aligned with God that answers the door. It will be one of these principalities or an evil being aligned with these principalities that answers the door. Here also Paul in 2 Corinthians. He says, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants, that is the servants of Satan, also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Let there be no mistake about that. So that said, notice that Paul, what Paul says about these evil spirits. He says that Jesus has disarmed them and put them to open shame. When? Where did Jesus do that? Where do we see Jesus do that? Well, it's, it's at Jesus' crucifixion. And I want to go all the way back 800 years before Jesus' crucifixion to Psalm 22 to look at this. Um. Psalm 22 gives what many Bible scholars, and I'm not a scholar, but I also agree, um, gives a look into the spiritual realm from the perspective of Jesus himself from the cross 800 years in advance. And listen to this. It says, many bulls encompass me. 
Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. I want to focus in on that phrase, the bulls of Bashan. Again, Many Hebrew scholars recognize these as spiritual powers that warred with God in both the Old and New Testaments. They were evil spirits, principalities, and powers that seem to have been present also at the crucifixion of Jesus, gloating over what they thought they had accomplished. But the crucifixion was not a loss by God. The crucifixion was God's victory. Because he rose again. Verse 15 in our passage, again, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Paul was a Roman citizen. Do you guys remember that? So Paul seems to be borrowing imagery from what would happen when a Roman general would conquer a new territory. The Roman general would stage a huge parade and the citizens would pour into the main street and follow along the Roman general and, and throw flowers down in front of him as he went. And the Roman general would be on a, on a golden chariot pulled by a team of white horses and attached to that chariot would be the principalities and rulers of the territory that he just conquered. He would be parading them in open shame, latched to his chariot, chariot of victory. And then behind them would be the spoils of, of war, the treasure and the gold and things like that that had been won. This is the kind of victory that Jesus has achieved on our behalf. He triumphed over evil by dying in your place and by raising from the dead. You no longer have to be led astray and walk in darkness. Those who are in darkness have seen the great light. Jesus is sufficient for you. Jesus is your victory. He's greater than human spiritual philosophies. He's greater than false ideas about God. He's greater than anything that you'll face. He's greater than what you've done. And he's greater than all the powers of darkness. Listen, if any of these things that we've talked about this morning are things that God is working with you in your heart about, we would love to talk with you more. You know, we observe the Lord's Supper each week. And when we come down, it's, it's, it's similar in some ways to that parade I talked about. You know why? We are the spoils of war. We are what Jesus has won. We are his prize. And in many ways, he's our prize. He's our victor, right? And so when we come forward and observe as followers of Jesus, the Lord's Supper, and we take this cup in our hands and this piece of bread in our hands, when we come forward, we're saying, look what Jesus bought. He bought me. I'm not in the realm of darkness anymore. He has set me free because he is who he says he is. And these are his implements of war, his Blood, his body broken and spilled for us.